Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Well, hello and welcome. This is Season 3, Episode 23 of Drive-by Cinema, the podcast with the new logo and the old tagline, watching movies so you don't have to. My co-host is Paul. Hi, my name's Paul, and I'm Richard. I'm Richard's co-host. Yes, yes. yes. So, yeah, join us on the Sisyphean task of rolling movies uphill. <laughs> Never-ending task. Yes, yeah, some of them are steeper hills than others. They are indeed. Yeah. Sorry, Richard. Last week, what were we looking at last week? Never let me go, Kazuo Ishiguro movie. Um, well, we had to let them go eventually. They were all completed eventually, weren't they? A very sad movie indeed. Moment of silence. The other, the other Japanese filmmaker who is very fond of, what's the word, extremely hard-hitting emotional stories told with deft lightness is the guy behind Studio Ghibli. Oh, really? You know, have you seen any of those films? Maybe. Uh, is there a joke coming here? No. It's Miyazaki, isn't it? Hayao Miyazaki. Miyazaki is, I, yeah. We're talking here about um, Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke and uh, dozens of other films, all from the same studio, all helmed by Miyazaki. You've not so, seen any? I'm, seen I'm not sure, really. They're all animated, Paul. I've got a feeling you're not. You don't like cartoons, do you? Well, I like, I like. You're like a dog, aren't you? you? To you, they just look like series of still images that don't fuse, don't they? That's not you true. Just, dogs can now watch HDTV. Things have changed. Oh, Richard. really? Is yeah. That, things have changed. Things have changed in dog world. Yeah, things have changed. Okay. If I show you an animation, you just cock your head to one side, don't you? Like a previously, like a the replenish puppy. rate and the pixelation on you know original uh, TVs until about three or four years ago was not sufficient for dogs to be able to understand the image. But if you go on TikTok or YouTube Reels or Facebook Reels, whatever it's called, or Instagram Reels, yeah, look at those short-form videos, yeah? You'll see lots of dogs really watching the TV and understanding what's going on there. And that's because we've got big screens, we've got extreme high definition, we've got refresh rates that are, are very, very, very consistent to dogs' vision. Well, I'm not sure that... The animation style has changed significantly for dogs, though. That's the problem, isn't it? Oh, you're saying because it's not actual real images, they can't recognise the uh, the abstracted idea of what the what the drawings represent. Oh, I agree with that. Yeah. Well, uh, possibly I'm also talking about you rather than dogs. Dog couldn't understand a picture of a fish, could it? Or a picture of a cat? Would it like a picture of a cat? It wouldn't recognise it. It would just be a set, a set of squiggles that didn't relate. Uh, Shapes and colours for a dog, yeah. So so if I resemble a dog, Rich, what do you resemble? A spider with a very primitive third eye. <laughs> this is this is very much like our demons in the in the world of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy, isn't it? It is really. What is our, what is our spirit animal, our demon? Interesting, you know those t-shirts that were out, you know, about six, seven years ago, those kind of hyper-realistic t-shirts of wolf heads or tiger heads or that kind of thing. Uh, there's two yeah. theories here. One is that you buy your inner spirit animal. 
There's a compensatory theory is you buy the silhouette or the shadow of your actual inner spirit spirit animal to put on your chest. Kind of thing. So who knows? Right. Um, anyway, okay. this has got absolutely nothing to do with last it, week's movie or the next, this week's really. So. Or this week's movie. Thank mm. you, thank you for bringing me to heel. So, what would um, well have we talked about last week's movie? Not really. Do we want to? Can we face it again? Have you recovered, Richard? It's heavy going, isn't it? It's certainly a weighty topic. Never let me go. There we go. Hmm. So dystopian? It, it is dystopian, but not a dystopian future. It's a dystopian no. past, an alternate reality, a parallel universe, isn't it? And so it was a focused, sober examination, I think, of those ethical issues. I was going to say, though, it, I mean, there are people in certain parts of the world who are selling their organs to get by. You know, selling their kidneys on, aren't they, and parts of the liver and stuff. There is a trade. I know it's illegal in the Western world to buy organs from people, but yeah. in some parts of the world, people do sell organs to to set themselves up with, with a... Can we take one step back and think about, how about how about surrogate pregnancies? How do you feel about that? What, should you be able to pay somebody to carry a child? Well, we, I mean, we do, but in the UK it's very managed, okay? It's, it's not a payment, it's uh, expenses fee, and it's limited to a certain amount. And it's set at a certain amount, you can't pay less, you can't pay more. It's something, it's not quite enough, really, for the cost of having a baby. It's something minimal at £17,000, which therefore guarantees that the woman having the baby really wants to have a baby, kind of thing. Um, but I, in other parts of the world, you can freely, if you like, not buy. Because that's the sense of the people, the needs of the people that have to go through this procedure. You can procure, you know, uh, surrogacy uh, in a marketplace. So I was wondering what your thoughts were about that, Rich. Well, uh, I mean, I don't see anything wrong with the idea of someone bearing a child for you. But obviously, as soon as money gets involved, all kinds of ethical problems emerge. And it, I mean, your description of ensuring that the woman wants to have a child. That's the, that's the rationalisation in the UK why why we pay on the expenses, and those expenses, expenses are quite limited and often don't meet the expenses involved in taking time off work to have a baby. But she's not going to keep the child. She's not, she's not going to get the child. What you mean is it ensures you find someone who wants to go through pregnancy, which seems much less, I don't know, <laughs> appealing. I mean, although you could argue that not having to then spend the next few years rearing a child and spending all the money rearing a child, if you wanted to go through the experience of being pregnant... Oh, right, you get the emotional roller coaster ride, which I guess is highs and lows, which it certainly is, you know, with the epidurals and whatnot, but you don't have the hassle of that that blood slug that comes out at the end, yeah. I mean. But, I mean, I suppose you could just give a, a baby away for adoption anyway, presumably. I think you can, actually. You could just say, I don't want it, can't you? I think so. And at the point you say that, I think they're quite happy to take it off you as well, aren't they? I mean, usually. I don't know about quite happy, but, you know. Uh, of course, the situation is what the US is kind of fomenting for itself by restricting abortion, which is an extremely stupid idea. State by state, it seems to be sweeping like a, like a deck of collapsing cards. Or badly stacked dominoes. Why do they think, why does anyone think that what is best for society is a load of children that nobody wanted? 
to be brought into the world. What? How do they not understand that? That's crazy. Organ harvesting, potentially? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. They're all potential churchgoers, aren't they? That's probably what they're thinking. So last week, Never Let Me Go, an explicit allegory to do with lots of things, the mortality and the class system, uh, but very focused and sober and, uh, you know, um, clinical examination of that situation. This week, uh, more allegories, Richard, I guess. Oh, well, if you're saying this week, we have to play the music. Music, here we can. So, we know what this movie is called, don't we? Uh, just let me check. Uh, yeah, it's called High Rise from 2015. And you said last week that it was written by... Well, the novel is written by J.G. Ballard, but I don't know who did the screenplay. Well, who directed it then? Ben Wheatley. Aha. Uh-huh. Why do we know the name Ben Wheatley? <laughs> Because you went to school with him, I don't know. Why do we know Ben Wheatley? No, he directed another drive-by cinema movie. I don't know, but he's younger than I, which is somewhat scary. Uh, Ben Wheatley. God, was it something we really, really wanted to watch? I think it was. Do you know? Oh, I can't remember. It was a field in England. Now. That starred Reese Shackersmith. Shearsmith, it did, who's also in High Rise. Who's also yeah. in High Rise, yeah. Maybe because or despite of Ben. Okay, now, I feel that we quite enjoyed, didn't we? Despite its complete nuttiness. But did he write that? I don't think he did, did he? Not sure. I'm not sure about writing it, but certainly his directorial style and hallmark it, it is run through both of these films, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I think maybe more maturely, more sophisticatedly in this latter example. But back to the writer, J.G. Ballard. So we had explicit allegory last week. We got explicit allegory this week. This is what I wanted to say before we set off on this movie. Except this isn't a focused, sober examination. This is a rough, rough ride of an evisceration of society and all the allegories that you can fit in a high-rise. Now, last week you'd read the Ishiguru book that the film was based on. This time, can I ask, have you read the J.G. Ballard? I have. J.G. Ballard is another author I've read virtually all of his work. Now, I said, I said, for example, uh, Cocaine Nights, I said it's about the south of France. Actually, it's the prequel to Supercans, Supercan, uh, which is about things going haywire in the south of France. Cocaine Nights is about things going haywire in the UK, I think, but everything's going haywire, as usually <laughs> happens in J.G. Ballard novels. He's quite fond of pharmaceuticals as interventions in his characters. Yes. Life, pharmaceuticals is one aspect, okay? It always happens. Um, breakdown, weird breakdown of society, okay? Uh, of rules and mores is something else that always happens in a J.G. Ballard situation. The third thing is terror... Uh, and horror in mundane situations, yeah. And something else as well, but I can't remember what always happens in a J.G. Ballard novel, but they always happen, yeah. Some kind of sex always happens. Lots of sex, and also some sort of examination of psychology, psychological deviance, 
uh, and the group mind and kind of very Adlerian ideas of power psychology always appear in his works. Like like Big Brother. You know when Big Brother became really popular in the 2000s? That whole way of looking at psychology in a way that wasn't Freudian, but was all about power play, group interrelational dynamics. He's always about that, or was, before it became really, really run-of-the-mill uh, because of various reality TV shows. So I guess that's maybe why he's fallen out of favour, is because what he said said has become like very much part of mainstream ideas. Yeah, yeah it's too normal, yeah. I mean, this is literally like an episode of Big Brother, isn't it? It is, yeah. Really, it's what happens. And but it's really just says, like living in a high-rise, you know, with a bit... Not that extreme, really, to be honest with you. I mean, it's 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 hammed up, but not does anything really worse happening that happens, you know, in in city life? Not really, actually. So, yeah. Now, although we do have Reece Shearsmith playing a role, the lead is played by Tom Hiddleston. He's playing Doctor Robert Lang. 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 I, don't know I think it's Lang. Yeah. Lang. Lang. Who is Tom Hiddleston? Apparently, is he famous? According according to IMDb. Tom Hiddleston spent time with a forensic pathologist to prepare for his role, since his character, Dr. Robert Lang, is a physiologist. Oh, I thought he was a psychologist. Well, I mean, unless I'm misreading my... Because I'm sorry, I can't really help you with that. One of the characters said, I've got a condition. He said, I can't really help you with that, because I know nothing about general GPRE. But as a physiologist, you'd think he'd be able to prescribe drugs, wouldn't he? But why did he spend time as... Why did the actor spend time with a forensic pathologist? If physiology is all about cutting up bodies, isn't it? And is that what physiologists do? Physiologists can with the body. Forensic pathologists spend their time cutting up bodies, so you can have a look inside the body. But I don't really know. That's just a bit too methody for my liking. I agree with you. Well, especially since the amount of time we see Tom Hiddleston's character actually doing medicine, which is cutting up is... with a skull. <laughs> oh yeah, there's one. There is one instance. Yeah. Also no, peeling, peeling, peeling the peeling the skin layer off the skull with his bare hands. Now that had to be in there for a reason, right? I mean, that is in itself a metaphor of something, isn't it? I don't know, but we don't get onto trepanning, but we do get onto lobotomy. So later on in the movie, don't we? Now at the start of the movie, him and Reece Shearsmith's character, who I think is an orthodontist, okay. they they are at the start of the movie. They are eating a dog and dumpster diving <laughs> for morsels in a bin. And before that is greatly explained or expounded upon, we go back to three months earlier. Ah, before in, we do that, it was, he says it's like we're living in a future that has already happened. And then we cut back to three months earlier. Oh, is that meaningful? I don't, well, we talked about last week, you know, the idea that Never Let Me Go was like the future but the past and also neither, a parallel universe. In a similar kind of way, you know, this dystopia is presented as being modern days, or at least modern day in the time it was written, the 19... The novel was written in 1975, by the way. 1975, yeah, okay. So that really is a, a period of experimentation in um, high-rise architecture, isn't it? Yeah, but it's also like, as the 70s were the downside of the 60s, high-rise was already getting a reputation, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Interestingly, you know, it, he creates this, not just an allegory, I guess it's a complete working model of society within within the high-rise. And um, he has, you know, the penthouse suites and the upper floors 
being highly desirable. And that quickly stopped being the case, didn't it? But it must still have been the case in 1975. I mean, this film, I think, has been compared to Snowpiercer in the way it lays out stratification of social order in a linear fashion. This, of course, is a train set on its end. Yeah, the interesting thing is, you know, is he talking about high-rises or is he talking about all society? Is he using the high-rise to differentiate what life is like in a modern uh disinfected environment compared to how we live now or before or is he saying actually the high rise just lets us see what society is anyway i was never really clear about what his intentions were in this movie is he talking about what life could become in the clinical desiccated disinfected future or are we already there and i guess as a novelist he doesn't really want to say that explicitly does he another film of recent years that seems to be doing a similar trick is Platform. I don't know if you've seen this. No, maybe we should put it on the list. Uh, we could do. It's a Spanish film. The idea is there's a sort of prison with a 100 levels. Uh, and in the middle of each cell, which is shared by two or three people, I think, in, in the general case, yeah. is a, a sort of square space. And every day, a platform laden with food, which at the very top, on level 100, as it were, Whoa. is delicious a delicious feast for a, you know, for a king, yeah. lowers itself through the floor by floor, through the space, and each floor gets a few minutes to gorge themselves on the food. Obviously, by the time you get to the bottom, there's nothing left, detritus and rubbish from the previous floors. This, of course, is a very obvious naked allegory for trickle-down economics and capitalism and stuff. There's something very similar going on here, as you say, isn't there? It is, but here, is, is it an allegory, or is it actually fable, because we've got animals in this movie, haven't we? Although, <laughs> nothing <laughs> nice happens. occasional animal, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, well, so, yeah, I mean, is this an overall, is this a hackneyed, is this uh, an overworked and burdened allegory? I don't know. Uh, maybe we should reserve judgment until we discuss the movie. But, but yeah, I mean, is, is it metaphorical? Is it allegorical? Uh, I'm not quite sure. Or is it analogical? I don't know, really, the extent. Well, look, it, it, the entirety of this film takes place in three months because three months before the dumpster He's not eating dog. And three months after he is eating dog, yeah. yeah. He's moving into his brand new home in this... Yeah, and um, God, it's impressive. It's a concrete brutalism again. Were, it, were the uh, 1970s ever that impressive? Because it looks fucking classy. Because you remember, the 80s and 90s was a time when it was all sort of delight, funky comedy, orange flares, you know, spanky, funky writing kind of thing. And it didn't look classic, it looked like a lava lamp. But at no point does any of this interior look anything apart from really, really fine. Yeah, the interiors are all kind of buttresses on the walls with kind of a textured concrete surface, like a ribbed concrete surface. Mm. Um, to me as a little kid, uh, I was always looking through time life books of what, you know, living would be like in the future. And they were all like 1950s, like watercolour drawings of people living in amazing concrete structures of this kind. But the reality of living in Manchester was, you know, rows and rows of identical... <laughs> Brick-built housing, social housing, and stuff like that. So, 
it, it seemed alien to me. Um, and even the high rises that I knew of were not the same as this at all. Um, he lives on floor 25. He's told that there's a, a gym on floor 30. And it's obviously not at the top. There are more levels above. And the top of the skyscraper has got this weird kind of cantilever effect, doesn't it? Where it's stepped, each floor steps back a bit from the other. Which enables his neighbour above, at one point, when he's um, sunbathing on his uh, on his balcony, to drop a champagne bottle nearly on him. <laughs> That's how they meet each other. Yeah. This is Charlotte, and she invites him up for a party. Seems she's been drinking all morning, or is drinking in the morning, because it's in the evening later. It's the 70s. It's the come down from the 60s. Who's going to stop drinking? And he was sunbathing naked, wasn't he? That's quite exciting to be doing in the morning as well. Getting your, um, your tanning in. Because in an era, again, where people didn't think twice about, about getting a suntan, has that advantage. What about that guy? What about that guy who continually goes around with no clothes on and keeps getting arrested? You heard now, about that guy. I don't know if they do. I don't like like the people that walk naked from John O'Groats to Land's End. They never get arrested, do they? It has to offend public decency, doesn't it? Or it has to be uh, indecent exposure, indecency. Stephen Goff, naked rambler, yeah, pro nudity uh, activist, former Royal Marine. He walked the length of Great Britain naked. He was arrested when he did it again in 2005 and 2006. These days he definitely would be arrested. Since then he spent most of the intervening years in prison, oh. having been repeatedly rearrested for contempt of court, really? for public nudity, and imprisoned. But we're heading back to the 70s here, aren't we, with this movie, where kind of things just swang, didn't they? Let's face facts, you know. Swang. Yeah, swanging parties to be witnessed in this movie of various kinds. I've stopped you, Richard, because you were pointing out lots of things. No, uh, I just noticed that he has a garbage chute very similar to the ones I have in my apartment block. And Reese Shearsmith's character's like, don't you fucking block that man. So so we know that Reese is something of a live wire and something of a typo personality in this movie. What's interesting about that is how. They're describing a situation of self-policing where the other residents are encouraging someone not to transgress the normal day-to-day running of the apartment block. Uh-huh. I don't think that happens in the apartment block I live in. I don't think that's a common thing. I think you live in Manchester, it... don't you? Yeah. Like... <laughs> what are you suggesting? No, I, I think Manchester is quite laissez-faire in, in how other people live their lives, aren't they? I guess that's true. You don't true, get yeah. many current twitches in Manchester, do you? No, maybe maybe that's true, yeah. Mm. yeah. Let the authorities deal with it. You know, ever since Peterloo, people have had a healthy disrespect for authority here, haven't we? So, so we meet uh, his uh, upper floor and same floor kind of neighbours. Yeah, One of them is his student called Munro, yeah. who faints while he's peeling ahead. In his physiology class. Well, Lang is peeling ahead of, yeah. And we get the first sense of vindictiveness when later on in the movie, or the first sense of Lang Lang being, you know, a, a, a flawed or limited character, where Monroe, he goes to see Monroe in hospitals, isn't he? Uh, t- to deal with the fact he's banged his head. 
and says, oh, oh, do, you know, and Monroe says, what about the scans? You know, is, and he's like, oh, God, no. And he makes out to Monroe that he's got some sort of fatal disease that's been accidentally discovered during the scan of his, you know, brain bump. So, yeah. So I was thinking, like, is is Balog suggesting there's some intangible amorphous evil that's running through society? Because there's no reason to, you know, for Lang to behave in that way. Is there? And we, he's not, Did he make it up? I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't he ca- made it up completely. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like, a ch- is that a change we're supposed to evidence in Lang, or is it amorphous evil running through the place? Or are we supposed to see Lang as more flawed than actually he is presented? Because completely out of character, to, he's possibly the most decent person in the whole movie. We're supposed to identify with him, aren't we? We follow with him ex- maybe movie. with the exception of the kid. You know, the kid that lives above him is fairly blameless. Um, but you know, like I didn't know about that. What was going on? So first of all, we have a we have a first of all we have a downstairs party, don't we? Where he meets. His neighbours. Well, the, the lady upstairs who's you're almost banging, almost gets around to banging a visitor while she's talking to Lang for the first time. Uh, he almost gets around to, to banging an out-of-work uh, TV reporter. She says, hey, we're having a party. Producer. I think he's a TV producer, isn't he? Not reporter. And so he gets invited to the first 70s swinging party, doesn't he? No, he's also met the mother who is the wife to, the, to that guy, the husband who's flirting with Charlotte. Richard Wilder. That's the Wilder, name of the character. That's right. So he's met Helen Wilder, who is she pregnant at this point? She must already be pregnant, noticeably pregnant at this point. Lang, Lang has pics of a woman with him. Uh, so suggesting that he had been married? Or um, I think. And he's like starting afresh in this apartment block, isn't he? It's partly the idea is he's starting a new life here. And he's got sleeping pills with him as well. He has to take these sleeping pills to sleep, it would seem. And he has a dream of dancing with flight attendants, who I suppose, when Ballard wrote this, were the height of, uh, you know, um, aspirational jet-setting elegance, rather than these days, which is glorified sky waitresses. Um, (laughs) Which is not to denigrate the work that they do, but they're not treated very well, are they, anymore? No, and uh, it, it doesn't attendance. to aspire to. A party happens. The hostess, Charlotte, invites him to the pool on 30. Obviously, she fancies him. He's a good-looking guy, isn't he, Tom Hiddleston? He is he very good-looking. Well. Yeah, yeah. She says, actually, gets... you're rare. You look better without your clothes on than with them on. <laughs> she does say that. But uh, Lang gets invited by a rather intimidating man to see someone called Mr. Royal on the 40th floor, the penthouse floor. Who it transpires later is the architect of this whole brutalist block. Quick interlude, quick interjection. Is this CGI, this brutalist block? It must be, mustn't it? It must be. There's no building quite like that. It's fabulous, by the way. And there's several new ones being built around it as well. The interior was Bangor Leisure Centre. (laughs) Really? So luckily, they had some impulse in there already and the saunas... The, for those for those areas of this vertical city, I guess. Yeah. Another quick interlude. Architects living at the top of their skyrise mm. buildings. Unusual, of course. Famously in Manchester, here you have number one, one of the the tallest building for a while. I think it may be overtaken or about to be the which everyone calls the Heat Hilton Tower because the Hilton Hotel is in the first twenty stories. But I, 
Other people call it the Beetham Tower, which I think is equally incorrect. Nonetheless, the architect did used to live in the penthouse house of that building. But he couldn't stand it because... Because it's way it has too a much. Sculpt- no, no. No, no. He, he has installed a sculpture on the top of it called the Blade, which is really just a single sheet of veins, like Venetian blind-style veins at the top. Yeah. And what all of Manchester discovered is that in certain high winds, that, that they object howls, yeah, a moaning, a weird moaning goes all over the city when, when the wind blows in the right speed. And wow. I think they tried to change it. They damped it or changed the resonance. But, I mean, it's still, in, the, in certain winds, it still will hum. Was it the curvature of the gherkin that caused another office to set on fire because of the concentrated sun rays? No, it wasn't the gherkin. It was an unusual building with a concave kind of front to it. How the hell did we get onto that? Oh, yeah. No, you were talking about uh, skyscrapers focusing the sun's rays. Yeah, and I think there is a building. Do you know why London buildings have got all those weird shapes, like the shard and... No, why do they? It's because of a particular set of planning laws that preserve sight lines to St. Paul's Cathedral. Ah, that's right, yeah. (laughs) Jeremy Irons is the architect of this building. Mr. Roy. And he has a large garden on the rooftop. He also has a wacko wife who seems to be indulging her medieval or late Georgian fantasies of living. She's got a horse up there in the garden, doesn't she? Yeah. Jeremy Irons, meanwhile, Jeremy Irons is walking around with a stick. He's called Mr. Royal, as we may have mentioned. Uh, He explains that he was run over by a truck. Did he say it was while they were building this tower? So he's sort of given his pound of flesh, as it were, to to make of the tower. And it's crippled him. Uh, During his visit to the penthouse, I think he breaks... or is it Royal breaks the thermostat his wife was struggling with? I think no, I think it was lying, wasn't it? He went over and tried to to fix the That's thermostat. Right, yeah, yeah. Broke. Is that is that trying to say something about new builds, Paul? Have the new builds you've been in all been perfectly functioning examples of machine for living? <laughs> no, but neither have they been any worse than uh, than anything else I've lived in. Is this the first hint of things going wrong? Yes. It's perhaps the bellwether, the canary in the coal mine. It is, yeah. In any case, he gets up there, and whilst he, uh, whilst Royal's wife is prancing, prancing around in medieval suits on a horse, uh, Lang gets invited to uh, an upper-floor party, doesn't he? He gets told to come back later. Yeah, I was never sure what was going on here, but he's trying to—he's saying something, isn't he, Ballard? Presumably about how class and society mm. works, and how, presumably, because he's a doctor, a preeminent in his field, presumably he's treated above he's his station, treated, so to speak. Yeah, above his station. Yeah, but you can never be—you know—a middle class class person can never be upper class, can they? Because no, we're not born no. to that blood. Meanwhile. Doc and Charlotte do finally fuck on the balcony, although mostly clothed, I noticed. Interesting. Especially considering he'd already got naked. Um, but Charlotte seems to be doing doing this sort of transactional thing, doesn't she? Because she's now wanting to know 
how his sister died. Yeah. So his picture that he was looking at. And he said, I thought we were doing this, i.e. sex. She's like, we've done it. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. But it was the 70s, you know. Her son Toby walks in on them whilst they're doing this, of course. He's always kind of spying on things through his kaleidoscope, isn't he, Toby? Yeah. And I think at one point Lang asks him, what can you see through that? And he says, the future. He's a bit annoying, Toby, but he's supposed to be, isn't he? Lang gets back to his apartment and he paints a tester square on his grey wall in a particularly nice shade of overcast grey that he's picked out from the sky. It's very fitting for a British guy, isn't it? Yeah, so he's looking. He's moving in. You know, he's he's looking to settle down, put down some roots, and so forth. We haven't had an indication that the ship is going to turn, have we? Well, maybe we're about to get it because, of course, this high rise, as is typical of the kind of building projects depicted and thought about through the fifties and sixties, is going to have everything in it. So it has its own supermarket and food supply, doesn't it? So one of the floors is a supermarket where he says he was looking for Riesling and he pronounces it the way you don't think it should be pronounced. <laughs> he says Riesling because he's educated. He says Riesling. Yeah. Germany. Well, Lane buys lime, lemon and wine. Not sure what he's planning to do with those. It's cocktail party stuff, isn't it, I suppose. But he ends up showing up to Royal's uh, party. Yeah. Dressed normally, as he does, smartly, very smartly, in a nice suit. But he gets laughed at. He gets hounded out of there with guffaws and condescension. Because it's a fancy dress party, and they're all dressed in Renaissance style. So what have you come as, a debutante? Or a dilettante? What have you come as, a dilettante, they say? And, yeah, he's coruscated by, by the acid shower of laughter that follows him. Terribly humiliating. Only the waiter... Has any sympathy? I think he oh. might be coming on to him, actually. So I, I can I can sympathise with you there, mate. We ought to stick together, Oslaw. Up the revolution. Citizen Smith, you got a job? Uh, kind of stuff. He's then bundled into the lift by, the, by Royal's heavy guy, but the lift malfunctions, and next we see him recounting his lift-related problems to Royal during a squash game, presumably a squash court somewhere else in the building, in the gym, I imagine. I, and what was the squash about? Was that supposed to signify something? I don't know. Well, presumably the party is a way of saying what we're saying, which is he's middle class. He can never actually fit in to the upper strata of society because he's not born to it. I think that's what it's saying. But upper classes um, do need feeding, don't they? They need to take in new flesh because they aren't self-replicating. So there is some sense. I mean, you can graduate there, but you, it's not... Everybody gets invited to the party that gets to stay. There might be, you know, a one in a thousand chance that he could get, he could marry the right kind of girl and get up there. You know? But, but yeah, and we to, know that we know that Royal is also fucking Charlotte as well. The woman in three seven. Yeah, she's having a good time. She's our Charlotte. We're seeing power cuts on the lower floors, and I think there's a suggestion that one girl is being sexually assaulted in the in the lower floors. So society in the tower block is breaking down. And there's also this really weird moment where... Well, he gets he gets sent out of the party and he gets stuck in the elevator. Have you mentioned that? Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. sorry, you just mentioned that. 
again, it's another symbol of the breakdown of of the building, isn't it? Mm. There's there's a moment where I think Lang and the uh, the 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 mother um, of the guy who's also sleeping with Charlotte, they both end up on the car park level. Now, car park is on a level of the building, isn't it? It's like raised up somewhere, which is another interesting feature of some brutalist concrete architecture where you get the car park high up. Uh, but they're both sort of standing in the car park and, and he says he can't remember where they left their car. Yeah. Are you, where does he fit in? So I always oh. say the allegory is really strong. It's like mobility happens, but you can't go against the mobility that's supposed to happen to you. Is there a fatalism? Like he was meant to go to the party and stay up there. The fact he's trying to go down now is going to break not just him, but the lift and the whole functioning society, i.e. the building. Are we? Is that what he's trying to say? Is that you have to go with the flow. There isn't mobility, but what mobility there is, when it happens to you, you have to accept. And you can't ever and go you back can't, to who? You can't keep one foot in one camp and another in another. You can't be friends to all levels. If yeah. you try and force the lift back down when it's not meant to go back down, then if you break that fatalism, that limited mobility, then everything breaks. And the upper floors need to eat the lower floors anyway. So you're going to have to become somebody's baby on a plate kind of thing. So is that is, is he making essentially a fatalist, brutalist argument for the nature that all society works? Not that he's advocating for, but he's saying this is actually how it is. I don't know. This is the point where after he was mocked by Munro, dressed in Renaissance gear for not having the right clothes on, Lane consults his scan after his fainting session and delivers the bad news. So you're right, it was really it was a reprisal, I think, yeah. for his treatment at the party. And we, we then see a quick session of a kid's party where they're teaching the kids Newton's law by throwing stuff off the balcony. Ah. And they chuck Blamon, something pink anyway, off the balcony onto one of the Toff's cars. <laughs> Again, it's it's naked class war stuff going on here, isn't it? Now, when the lights and stuff start going out and the shortages down below, yeah, like, yeah, Battle really portrays the lower classes as being not just ready for violence, but kind of predisposed to violence and predisposed to irrational modes of dialogue and conflict. Do you not feel that? That it kind of like. I, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't see people suddenly exploding in that powder keg kind of way without months of like, you know, fire hydrants going off and blackouts and exasperation, you know. I mean, but here it just kind of goes off, doesn't it? Suddenly they start to protest and kind of start fighting the order. Which, but it's actually instigated by the upper floor people, isn't it? Oh. Because. There's a scene where the kids are being led to the pool, which the the upper class people had shut off for a party. And so the people, the lower floor people with the kids, gate crash it so they can get the kids into the pool. And that's sort of when things start getting violent, I think. At some point, Munro ends up being pitched off one of the balconies. Uh, and because he's terrified of the cancer, the cancer diagnosis he's been given by yeah. by Lang, you yeah. see. Now Lang knows this, but nobody else does. However, Lang is suspicious when the police don't turn up to investigate. Now, the morning after this carnage, Lang is 
in the bathroom shaving with a safety razor. Do you remember those? I do, yeah. The 70s is the last time I saw one. My granddad used to have them. Well, Lang doesn't have water when he's shaving. Charlotte is there, though. So, again, they're hanging around together, aren't they? Uh, Well, the upper floor people want to throw a better party. So they need booze, canapes, cocktail onions, and cake, they decide. And so they decide, they, they tell Royal to go to the supermarket. I don't know why he's going. Uh, Lying is re- regarding the crushed Triumph Stag, I think. Is that the car that was landed on? Yeah, it was a Triumph Stag, yeah. Uh, if we're wrong, I'm sure Julian will correct us. Um so it's all because the classes... It's bad saying classes can't mix. Classes should mix, but actually they can't be because when they do, they get knowledge and they get competitive. And it's better if everything's swept under the carpet, really. Not because it's better that way, just because... I mean, life in the tower is breaking down at all levels, though, isn't it? What's yeah. interesting is it affects the upper floors as much in different ways. But, you know, the uh, the upper floors are in a sort of bacchanalian kind of... Sexual orgy. And, and the lower floors yeah. are poking, poking holes in the garbage chute and but stuff. As the, or, as the orgy, or, orgiastic behaviour continues, and Royal and his immediate coterie require, if you like, the support and protection of the rest of the upper class, that kind of means that the parallel dynamic there changes, and his henchmen become much stronger, don't they? And so we actually see... Uh, a deterioration or a disintegration of the original very rigid power structures of essentially what was British uh, or a British colonial society, if you like, society of empire, break down to something much more feral and much more militaristic, which is interesting. Lang, who I suppose, we're, you know, is middle class, upper middle class, he's keeping up his routine as best he can. Mm. You know, he's trying to do normal things in the midst of all of this, which is another interesting assessment of Britishness in the face of this kind of stuff, isn't it? But he ends up... The supermarket is dark now and being looted all the time. And the Toffs sort of raid it with improvised weapons and beat Wilder up. And Lang is fighting over a tin of paint so that he can paint his walls the perfect <laughs> shade of grey. Blue, this one. He's, oh, it's blue, is it now? He's decided on the colour to be blue. Well, the sky is maybe improving. Interestingly, some does end up on his face. It's just an allusion to Wode being painted on the face of British warriors. I don't know. It's but, a very grey blue, I have to say, oh. that ends up on his face. But maybe maybe you're right. Well, there we go. So, yeah, uh, and there's a lot of violence, some of which is committed by Lang himself, isn't it? Okay, It's really quite squeamish, this part of the movie. is quite a lot of... Eye socket popping, kind of like thumpery going on. Everything goes to hell in a handcart. This part reminded me of Mother! Exclamation mark. Ah, you thought it was a bit, a bit drearily over dramatic. It's this idea, isn't it? It's the whole, you know, life without laws would be nasty, brutish, and short. What was yeah. that? Was that Locke or Hume? Yes, yeah, Leviathan, all that stuff. It's this idea that without sort of strict order and control, that humankind reverts to its natural state of, you know, hitting one another with jawbones and stuff. Oh, to take and it, I'm, Richard is something of a Rousseauian. Yeah. Well, 
The noble savage, which in itself is an idealization of a different kind, isn't it? Look, I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm fine. The noble savage, I'm also not on board with that. Oh, okay. But I just don't think people do revert. You know, people have a tendency to spontaneously organize, in fact, when left to their own devices, don't they? Typically, yeah. Yeah. So you haven't solved Butler's mysteries. Why does stuff break down then? Because I mean, he's only he's only like stylizing breakdowns that he himself witnessed. I mean, I think all of this comes back to his formative experience in Shanghai when the Japanese arrived, isn't it? You know, and his experiences. Of I was going to say this about Ballard. Last week we all had his a novels, guy. And all his novels are, are an attempt at you know giving himself therapy. You know. Well, last week we had uh, Ishiguro. Uh, ca- Katsuo Shigeru, who is a Japanese guy who came to live in England when he was a young boy. Yeah. And here we've got Ballard, who lived in Shanghai, and then, but he's obviously English eth- ethnically. So there's something going on here with the appreciation of Englishness in a foreign context, isn't there? Which there's a lot happens in this film. Yeah. Uh, we're barely like three quarters of the way through the story, really, are we? Because there is, as you say, the royals at some point want to get Lang to lobotomize Wilder for his perceived crimes. Yes. But um, Wilder's got something going on. He's going to take revenge, isn't he? He's going to, he's going to murder. Who's he going to murder? I don't know. In any case, what's going on? How does Wilder find out about shit? He finds out that... I don't know what he finds out. Lang goes to Charlotte, ends up speaking to Wilder, because I think Wilder tried to rape... Charlotte? No, he had successfully oh, raped her one time. Ra- had raped her, He yeah. raped her again, I think. Uh, there's a suggestion that Toby, the boy, is the son of the architect, the bastard son of the architect, I suppose, yeah. at some stage. But Lang and uh, Wilder have sort of a heart-to-heart at some stage. Mm. He says that self-contained types like you are the dangerous ones, characterises Lang of being... I didn't get that. I didn't really get that. High-rise life, but he, he isn't really. I didn't, and then he gives him a note that he's written. I didn't really get uh, that. Are we supposed to think the? I mean, either we see Wilder as uh, a speaker of truth, because that's how he casts, isn't he? Somebody who just speaks the truth and is brave, or we, or is he already? Are we supposed to see him as you know somebody whose record is already stuck in the same groove? I'm not really sure. It's not clear how he's presented here, is he? Because he's way off about Lang and his character. And he's, I, I don't know, just none of it resonates about about people who carry on and how they're the worst. I don't, he's probably, I mean, Lang isn't isn't the worst. It's obvious he's not the worst. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know what that's all about. In any case, uh, Wilder uh, gets to Charlotte's apartment with a gun. Is that right? That's right, yeah. And therefore... Forces her to do something. I don't know what. Give him the well, keys to Charlotte- access Royals Royals uh, penthouse suite. That's it. Helen, who was the mother, who was the wife of Wilder, she gives birth to their latest child while Wilder crawls in the air vents. He gets to the, the penthouse garden where Lang had been speaking to Royal in glowing terms about the building's qualities. Over a meal of presumably horse steak, I think. <laughs> Horses no more. Oddly, Charlotte was serving that meal. Well, Again, there's some kind of class thing going there's on. There's stuff going on there. But if Lang, if uh, sorry, if uh, 
if Wilder's wife is now cleaning upstairs in the penthouse, why can't she let him in? Charlotte, at some stage, grabs the steak off Royal's plate and bites it, you know, which is reminiscent of what happened in that movie about cam sex, where the girl at the steak... <laughs> it was, it was. Is this before she says, hey, which of you fuckers is going to bum me, bum me hard up the ass? Was that the part that was, of before after? Wasn't that the actress woman at one point? Oh, sorry, it was the actress. Beg for anal sex, yeah, on the on the coffee table. Um but yeah, Wilder arrives with a gun. He asks Royal why he took his wife. And then, angered by his comments, um, R- Royal moves to attack Wilder, who shoots, wounding Royal. And then the women, Charlotte and presumably her else was there, stab Pull out Wilder's Wilder. heart, basically. Well, okay. And dispose of it in the swimming pool, along with all the other dead bodies that have been killed in this class warfare. I don't think and at it... the very end of the movie, Toby the Kid is listening to Thatcher give a speech on the radio. Yeah, now Toby has knocked a hole through his apartment to watch Lang beneath. Lang himself is just muttering to the walls and to all intents and purposes has gone, you know, has gone insane through the traumatic but At least they're nicely painted walls. Exactly. Through the traumatic experiences that he's been he's been forced to experience. Um yeah, yeah. So, and again, I mean, this is pre-Thatcher, isn't it? The whole novel. Uh, so the novel isolation. is pre-Thatcher. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, I don't think the themes. I didn't like, you know, this extension of the themes. Okay, so it is about isolation in a, a modern living concept kind of skyscraper or high-rise, but it's not really. I think we decided about high-rise living, is it? So it's not really about the modern experience. I don't think. So I'm not no, sure. No, it's, it's, it's just about class. It's I'm, cla- so it's, I'm not it's sure it's about Thatcher ideas of Cook the Thief, his wife and his, and his lover, which was about Thatcher, you know, which was about the increasing individualism and perceived selfishness of people living those kind of self-satisfied lives. It really isn't about that, is it? So I thought that was a weird add-on to make it topical in a way that just didn't really fit the major thrust of the movie. Although it's I can see how you've seen the point, isn't it? Well, you could spin this. You could you could d- certainly direct this movie to be about that, but they didn't. They did it pretty much faithfully to what Ballard wrote about, and I don't think he was talking about that kind of individualism, was he? He was more talking about class tension than anything else. Ballard is fascinated with drugs. He presumably does quite a lot of them himself, right? <laughs> did I think he's gone for about ten years now? Not sure. I mean, that's my sense, is I don't make much um, sense of the end of this film. In the same way I didn't make much sense of Mother. I know that's my failing. I mean, other than the broad brush strokes and, you know. You know, uh, gilded gilded cages, you know, and, and beautifully painted uh, serene interiors in, in a crazed, non-zombie-infested world. Uh, similarly, sorry, what was the point you were making, Richard? I've just interrupted you. The point I was making is, what is this all about? <laughs> oh, drugs. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, for Ballard, it's all about quotidian everyday escape, isn't it? You know, salvation does come in a bottle. Salvation does come in a nice blue paint pot. Uh, I, I think really his conclusion is society is the way it is. Don't approve of it. But I, I haven't got an idea how to make it better. And, uh, you know, get your kicks how you can and make it tolerable. I really think that's often the conclusion you get with Ballard. It's anti-political. Well, okay. 
That's quite depressing, then. <laughs> it is, but it, it's a realist. But it's an anti-political stance, isn't it? I think Ballard, yeah. he, he's fundamentally a, a anti-political writer, and that, I think, it might be the reason he's fallen out of favour in the last 10, 10 years. He, he doesn't take a political stance on these things. And in the way that he refuses to do that, he's kind of affirming, although not intentionally, of a status quo, isn't he? Mm, yeah, I can see that. No. So a depressing movie again. But what we got through, Richard... <laughs> <laughs> Do you find this more or less depressing than Never Let Me Go? I found the violence in this quite sickening. Uh, I was hoping it was going to be better than Clockwork Orange, but it isn't. It's just as horrible as Clockwork Orange's movie. Uh, it, it's really bleak, isn't it? It's a really bleak movie. So it's, it is. There are no real. There are no moments of levity at all. There are no moments of beauty. You know, like American. What's it? American Beauty? Is it with the with the floating plastic bag at the end? Plastic bag. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, there are no moments where we can see something other than the horror that that this world is. Um, it's unremitting in that sense and, and quite depressing. That's true, Paul. Let's do some scores then. Yeah. Where do we start? We start with acting or ever. It's it's the letter A and uh Yeah. I mean I mean they're asked to act hard and that's gritty and they do so successfully. But in, in terms of dynamic range, we don't really see that because they're not given the opportunity to present that dynamic range all this. So for me a seven. It's a good cast, isn't it? Yeah. Tom Hiddleston, Jeremy Irons, Sienna Miller, uh James Porfot Pur uh, I don't Proofock. know how you say his name. Proofock. Poor Foy is one of the toffs. Luke Evans is Wilder, who has been in a few things. I can't remember right now. off the top of my head. And Keely Hawes as well is in it. Uh, yeah, so I'll give it a... I'll give it a seven. Well, Pot um, problems therein. I mean, it's problematic, isn't it? I, there's some things I don't buy about either... Ballard's thesis, or mm. Ballard's presentation of reality, or or an alternate reality. Agreed. It just doesn't but quite it, clunk, clunk and click, does it? Something doesn't quite mesh with all this. But it's better than Mother. Exclamation it is. Mark. The problem is, it's polemical. There's nothing wrong with it being polemical. But I just, when you do something polemical, then it has to follow logic, and or you have to construct an argument based on the polemical nature of of, of your essay or your novel. Or your film, you'd be a piece of fiction. And it, it doesn't convince. It doesn't convince, and I can't explain why, but it just doesn't. So for that reason, otherwise, you know, really powerful, very moving, nice thought-provoking kind of stuff. But for that unconvincing aspect of it, that jarring aspect where it doesn't quite, the jigsaw doesn't quite fit, 6.5. 6. I'm at I'm a 6 as well. Oh, okay. It's, it's above average, right? And it's thoughtful, and it makes you think. But, yeah, it doesn't give me much of an insight that I'm not already toiling to bring to it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. how about... I don't want to say... I don't know how to express this. How about... Architecture? No, I was kidding. Well, we can do that. We can do that in a sec. Uh, but I think we have to go, first of all, don't we, to things like uh, gratuitous violence, its depiction of its value, uh, you know, the action in the movie. Was it worthwhile? Was it necessary? Did it perform any worthwhile function? Or was it or was it just a movie for people that like to see people get hurt? You know? Which is a criticism well, it, of Clockwork Orange, isn't it? 
Look, this is not going to satisfy a torture porn like gore fest. No. Act. So it was worthwhile, I think. You know, the, the, the violence was there for a reason. And, you know, at some point, it, it just serves to alienate you, the audience member, from things that are happening. It is alienating, isn't it? It's just... <sighs> yeah. Very quickly, I don't care, you know. And quite quickly, I can't really tell what is happening to whom. <laughs> If they're not dressed up, you know, in Renaissance no, no, I'm with you, yeah. powdered wigs and stuff like that. That was a problem, so, yeah. So a six. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't get, get to the point of caring. So you're saying a six for sex the... Sex and violence. Point. And the sex, don't forget. Swinging sex and the gratuitous violence is six for me. I'll give it a six, yeah. Okay, yeah. How about 70s vibes and architecture? I mean, the cars and the... Uh, the building itself, it's kind of spot on, isn't it? Yeah. So this is a strong point. I'll go an eight here for the rendition of Time Life books. I actually went eight too, so I'm going to go an eight. Okay, overall for me, it's a 6.5. It is a good movie. Okay, I won't say it's a pleasant movie. And uh, yeah, a 6.5. Like some big names in here, for crying out loud. Or later became big names. There's some that were big names already. It's a great watch. Uh, just, just don't... Don't watch it if you're feeling frail or you want some sort of emotional transformation or emotional affirmation in your life, because it's not about that, is it? But a good movie nonetheless. You know, the thing is, for all of its talk of class and stuff, most people who live in deprived conditions, are underprivileged, who are living in high-rise accommodation, they don't have... Like upper class people living above them. <laughs> no, they don't. They live in a ghetto. <laughs> and, you know, they're not really going to complain about the lights being off in the corridor either. Let's face facts. No, they're not. No. So, and they're not going to complain about the fact that they have to go outside to buy groceries, you know. So, <laughs> so, but, I mean, he's talking about the fact these people have been sold a wonderland, yeah. These people yeah. have been sold a dream and then the dream is turned up short so so he's not talking about reality and he's not talking about high rises i think we can conclude that fairly safely yeah i don't hate it i don't hate it it makes me i i have read a little bit of ballard but i i found it equally i think i've read brave new world i think i, I find it it does make me feel more inclined to read it because this so, is quite old-fashioned isn't it this is from the 70s it yeah. feels like you know clockwork orange it feels like that kind of stuff a bit shocky a bit kind of, oh, the first time we can talk about sex and violence in novels kind of thing, you know. And it just doesn't cut the mustard these days, does it? But his latest stuff is much more up to date. I will give it a six. A six? I thought you'd go. Yeah. All right. Well, there we are. We've done High Rise. Mm. Uh, are we having more arty films, Paul? Let me know what <laughs> movies we've got coming up. Here we go. And okay. I'll choose. With no further ado, I'm going to give you three choices, Richard. And I think two of these are things that you like. So, uh, prick up ears, everybody. Okay, Monsters from 2020. Firestarter, I think, from 21 or 22. And Office Space, about which you know something, but I know very little. Well, I'll give you one more. I'll a- give you one more. Platform. Oh. Platform, the one we mentioned. I I can't give you platform right now. Not not three on the trot, all heavily allegorical. (laughs) It would drive us mad, Paul. Um, I'm not saying we won't come back to it. I think we'll watch. I think we'll watch Monsters. Yeah, okay. I didn't think you were going to go for that one at all. 
You really, you really misled me with the old Ronaldo shuffle there on your dribble there. I took a left when you were expecting right. <sighs> wow. Well done. Okay, I didn't see that coming. Monsters it is. I hope it's a little more lighthearted than the stuff we've been labouring through these past three weeks. Because let's not forget Vivarium wasn't an easy ride either, was it? Um, so there we go. Amen. That was 23. Uh, I hope you're still with us if you're still watching these movies. And until the next time, goodbye for now. Ciao for now. See you next time.